We have hundreds of thousands of people here, and I just want them to be recognized by the fake news media. Turn your cameras, please, and show what's really happening out here, because these people are not going to take it any longer. They're not going to take it any longer. It would be really great if we could be covered fairly by the media. The media is the biggest problem we have, as far as I'm concerned. Single biggest problem. The fake news and the big tech. We beat them four years ago. We surprised them. We took them by surprise. And this year, they rigged an election. They rigged it like they've never rigged an election before. And by the way, last night, they didn't do a bad job either, if you notice. I'm honest, and, and I just, again, I want to thank you. It's uh, just a great honor to have this kind of crowd and to be before you and hundreds of thousands of American patriots are committed to the honesty of our elections and the integrity of our glorious republic. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. We will not let them silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen. Not going to let it happen. Thank you. And I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. All he has to do, all in, this is, this is from the number one or certainly one of the top constitutional lawyers in our country. He has the absolute right to do it. We're supposed to protect our country, support our country, support our Constitution and protect our Constitution. States want to revote. The states got defrauded. They were given false information. They voted on it. Now they want to recertify. They want it back. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president, and you are the happiest people. We're gathered together in the heart of our nation's capital for one very, very basic and simple reason, to save our democracy. You know what the world says about us now? They say, we don't have free and fair elections. And you know what else? We don't have a free and fair press. Our media is not free. It's not fair. It suppresses thought. It suppresses speech. And it's become the enemy of the people. So when you hear, when you hear, while there is no evidence to prove any wrongdoing, 
This is the most fraudulent thing anybody said. This is a criminal enterprise. It's a disgrace that the United States of America, tens of millions of people, are allowed to go vote without so much as even showing identification. In no state is there any question or effort made to verify the identity, citizenship, residency, or eligibility of the votes cast. The Republicans have to get tougher. You're not going to have a Republican Party if you don't get tougher. They want to play so straight. They want to play so, sir, yes, the United States. The Constitution doesn't allow me to send them back to the States. Well, I say, yes, it does, because the Constitution says you have to protect our country, and you have to protect our Constitution, and you can't vote on fraud. And fraud breaks up everything, doesn't it? When you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. It is also widely understood that the voter rolls are crammed full of non-citizens, felons, and people who have moved out of state, and individuals who are otherwise ineligible to vote. Yet Democrats oppose every effort to clean up their voter rolls. They don't want to clean them up. And then they say, you didn't quite make it, sir. Uh, we, won we won in a landslide. This was a landslide. They said, it's not American to challenge the election. This is the most corrupt election in the history, maybe, of the world. You know, you could go third world countries, but I don't think they had hundreds of thousands of votes, and they don't have voters for them. I mean, no matter where you go, nobody would think this. In fact, it's so egregious, it's so bad that a lot of people don't even believe it. It's so crazy that people don't even believe it. It can't be true. But as this enormous crowd shows, we have truth and justice on our side. Our greatest achievements still wait. I think one of our great achievements will be election security, because nobody until I came along had any idea how corrupt our elections were. And again, most people would stand there at 9 o'clock in the evening and say, I want to thank you very much. And they go off to some other life. But I said, something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. Can't have happened. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you. And God bless America. Thank you all for being here. This is incredible. Thank you very much. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 45, The Road to Fascism. Our opening this week are extended excerpts from Trump's January 6th speech in Washington, D.C. Time is limited, the amount of the speech we've been able to excerpt here. But the whole speech can be heard online, and I recommend that anybody search it out and listen to it. It's amazing that such a speech could be made in America, and by an American president, no less. In episode 31, 
we looked at pre-World War II Germany and examined the steps that led them to fascism. So this episode, let's take a little time and examine our recent flirtation with far-right politics and see how similar our path was to pre-World War II Germany. So, we noted that step one in the movement to fascism was to find some resentment that's festering in a large percentage of the voting populace and tap into it. One of the most notable changes in the American economic landscape in recent decades is the decline of the middle class. In the 1960s, it was possible for an American with a high school education to get a job and live a middle-class lifestyle, or something approaching that. While that can still happen, it's not the case anymore for far too many high school graduates. There's an enormous group of disaffected Americans whose parents perhaps may have been in the middle class, but who find themselves struggling. Trump was the populist candidate that was able to tap into their disaffection. It wasn't just his promise to make America great again that resonated with them. There's a simmering anger that had been latent for a long time for many Americans. Trump's bullying style provided an outlet for their anger. Step two, raise the resentment to rage. Perhaps Trump's greatest oratorical gift may lie in playing to his base's anger. This anger has been there for a long time. Trump gave them an outlet for it. I played extended cuts of Trump's speech on January 6, 2021, because I think it's very instructive to see how he does this. American sociologist Arlie Horschild talks about a feeling of betrayal on part of much of the American working class. They feel as if the American dream has been taken from them. Trump spent five years including the year he spent campaigning, fanning their anger. Angry people want a leader that they can relate to and who understands them. Trump gave this to them in spades. Step three, establish a boogeyman. There's no argument here. Trump understood this step from the very beginning of his campaign and started in on undocumented immigrants. His rhetoric with regard to undocumented immigrants was incredibly incendiary and designed to get people to hate them. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These are not people, they're animals. Democrats are the problem. They don't care about crime and want illegal immigrants, no matter how bad they might be, to pour into our country, like MS-13. He repeatedly spoke about the prospect of millions of people pouring across our borders, and about our country being overrun by illegal immigrants, if he, Trump, wasn't there to stop them. Over and over again, Trump warned his base that these people were criminals and would bring crime into our country, even calling them rapists. Why did these statements play so well to Trump's base? Because Trump spoke directly to the disaffected white working class. Their parents had worked hard and been able to provide them with a middle-class lifestyle. So why were they struggling so hard? Trump's answer to that question was that illegal aliens were streaming across our borders and taking all the jobs that had once gone to the white working class. This, of course, wasn't true. Over the years, lax border policies have allowed something over 10 million immigrants in but these policies had already changed, even without Trump's wall. 
Step 4. Instill fear in your followers at every opportunity. In Trump's words, we're going to fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. Drugs are, quote, pouring across the border. Bad people with bad intentions are flooding through our airports. For four years, Trump provided us with a barrage of half-truths and sometimes outright lies, all designed to frighten his followers and make them realize that without him, it's hopeless, that life as we know it will soon be over, or, as he put it, you're not going to have a country. In an interview with Bob Woodward and Robert Costa of the Washington Post, as a presidential candidate in 2016, Trump said, Real power is, I don't even want to use the word, fear. It's kind of the amazing thing about Donald Trump. He said whatever he thought. If other political candidates were to say, real power is fear, and I'm going to use fear to obtain power, they'd never be elected. Trump never worried about that, and it never hurt him. But Trump understood this principle and returned to it constantly. In his re-election campaign against Joe Biden, Trump perhaps expressed it most succinctly. No one will be safe in Biden's America. Feel free to go back and look at his stump speeches when he was campaigning for a second term. He talked about the chaos and disorder that happened during the protests that were occurring at the time. These, of course, were happening on his watch when he was president. Yet Trump warned his supporters that the protests and rioting would not only be much worse if Biden were elected president, but that they would spread to the suburbs. On September 8, 2020, Trump tweeted, If Biden gets in, this violence is coming to the suburbs and fast. You could say goodbye to your American dream. Then, of course, we heard about the terrible convoys of immigrants headed to the U.S. borders. Immigrants have long traveled up from El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua in groups. If you've done your reading for Episode 42, Enrique's Journey, you know how dangerous it is. Immigrants travel in groups for safety. But what do you do if you're a country's leader looking to use fear to motivate your populace to trust you as their savior? Find one of these groups. Start calling them a caravan. Track their progress and report on it in ever more ominous tones. Fear works. But what about climate change and COVID-19? Trump could have used these issues to make voters more fearful. Yet he ignored them as much as he could. Why? Voters trusted Biden more on these issues than Trump, so he downplayed them. Instead, Trump tried to convince suburban women, a demographic he was courting, that the violence happening in the cities would soon be in their neighborhoods. Step 5. Be a Savior Over and over, Trump portrayed himself as the one who could save the country. What about terrorist organizations? In November 2015, he was campaigning for president. He claimed, I know more about ISIS than the generals do, believe me. Seriously? Donald Trump 
a businessman, knew more than generals about military matters, surely the fallout from that one would make him back off. Evidently not. He reiterated it in 2016. But the list of things Trump knows better than anyone else, or at least that he claims to know better than anyone else, is long. It includes ISIS, the U.S. government system, the courts, trade, immigration, the borders, Democrats, the economy, technology, taxes, debt, money, infrastructure, social media, the visa system, politicians, lawsuits, renewable energy, TV ratings, campaign finance, construction, and even drones. U.S. presidents have had a long history of appealing to God and to the American people. In 1968, Richard Nixon, in talking about the nation's problems, said, Without God's help and your help, we will surely fail. But with God's help and your help, we will surely succeed. In 1980, Ronald Reagan, talking about the problems then faced by the nation, said, I ask you not simply to trust me, but to trust your values, our values, and to hold me responsible for living up to them. And in 2000, George Bush Sr., in talking about the problems faced by his administration, said, I know the presidency is an office that turns pride into prayer, but I'm eager to start on the work ahead. Yet, when talking about the dangers faced in 2016, Trump told his audience, I am your voice. I alone can fix it. I will restore law and order. Step 6. Demand complete loyalty. Do I really need to discuss this one? Trump seemed to be obsessed with this one. He reportedly once said, I value loyalty above everything else, more than brains, more than drive, and more than energy. Only seven days after being elected president, Trump sat down to a private dinner with FBI Director James Comey. As Comey recalls the dinner, Comey was making small talk about political issues when Trump turned the subject to whether Comey would pledge his loyalty to Trump. Hopefully this was shocking to everyone who heard it. The director of the FBI is required to be independent and committed to pursuing justice wherever that takes him or her. To forsake this duty and pledge loyalty to a president should be shocking to everyone. On March 2, 2017, Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused himself from the Justice Department's investigations into Russian interference in the 2016 election. As the investigation got underway, reports came out that Sessions had met twice with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. So recusal was the legally responsible thing for Sessions to do. For an entire year, Trump rallied against Sessions for failing to have the loyalty that he demanded. Eventually, there was a scene that was reported in the Oval Office where Trump exploded at Sessions, saying that appointing him was Trump's worst mistake, calling Sessions an idiot and demanding that he resign. Trump never understood that the attorney general wasn't his personal lawyer. In fact, the nation's attorney general has no loyalty to the president. His or her loyalty is to the American people to assure that justice is fairly meted out, however that may play out. 
Step 7. Lie. Lie directly to your supporters and do it whenever it suits your interests. His was the largest crowd for any inaugural ceremony in history. It rained during his inaugural address. COVID was equivalent to the flu, that it was totally under control, and that it was disappearing. This was perhaps the lie, or group of lies, that he repeated most often in his presidency. As mentioned earlier, fear of COVID didn't help him politically. With so many COVID deniers in his base, he repeated this lie over and over again. He went as far as telling people that masks aren't necessary. In 2019, Trump tweeted that Alabama was in the possible path of Hurricane Dorian. He was wrong. It wasn't. No biggie. Just correct the error. For whatever reason, Trump made this one small boo-boo into a huge issue as he refused to acknowledge the error and the media wouldn't let it go so long as he kept repeating the lie. He went so far as to have federal officials pressure the federal meteorologists to change their predictions and say that Trump was right and that they had been wrong. In 2017, Trump said that the head of the Boy Scouts had called him to tell him. His weirdly political speech to the Boy Scout National Jamboree was the greatest speech ever made to them. The Boy Scouts confirmed that no such call ever happened. Representative Ilhan Omar supports al-Qaeda. No, she doesn't. He didn't know about the payment of hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels. Yes, he did. He personally reimbursed his fixer, Michael Cohen, for the money paid to her. He was once Michigan's Man of the Year. No, he wasn't. I don't begin to have enough time to cover all the lies told by Trump in his campaign and during his presidency. He lied about big things, and he lied about small, inane things. Some things were so small, you'd wonder why someone would take the time to lie about them at all. And thanks to Daniel Dale from CNN for compiling a complete list that you can find on the internet if you're interested. The important thing is that his supporters were so used to his lies, he was their savior after all, that when it came to the most important lie, his biggest lie of all, that there had been massive voter fraud, and that he had really won the election? His base was just used to believing in Trump, and did so automatically. Never mind that all 50 states confirmed the election results, and that there were Republicans on the boards that confirmed these results in every state. Never mind that he filed over 63 lawsuits on the subject, because he had convinced his followers that he was trustworthy, and the media was dishonest. They were used to his lies and trusted whatever he said. If he said it, it was true. Trump had won the election. Step 8. Convince your supporters that the ends justify the means, and encourage your supporters to use violence to achieve your ends. Yep, Trump was on this one from the beginning. At one Trump rally during his candidacy, when protesters were being removed, as they always were, And Trump said, there's a remnant left over. Maybe get the remnant out. The crowd, taking its cue, then tried to root out other dissenters. All the while, chanting USA. As the melee was going on, Trump said, isn't this more fun than a regular boring rally? To me, it's fun. 
In August of 2015, two brothers in Boston were arrested for urinating on a homeless 58-year-old Mexican-American man and beating him with a pipe. After being arrested, they invoked Trump as justification for their acts. Trump's response? Shock? Outrage? No. His response to reporters the following day was, I will say, the people that are following me are very passionate. They love this country. They want this country to be great again. But they are very passionate, I will say that. There was this famous January 2016 statement at a campaign rally. I could stand in the middle of Times Square and shoot somebody and wouldn't lose voters. At another campaign rally the same year, he said, If you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously, just knock the hell out of them. I promise you. I will pay for the legal fees. I promise. There won't be so much of them, because the courts agree with us. At one point during his presidency, Trump seriously asked aides if we could shoot immigrants crossing our borders illegally in the legs in order to slow them down. Then there was, of course, the infamous events in August 2017, when white nationalists chanted anti-Semitic and Nazi slogans while protesting the city of Charlottesville's decision to take down a statute of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. While at the event, one white nationalist drove directly into a crowd of counter-protesters, injuring several and killing one of the counter-protesters, Heather Heyer. Trump's famous response? He thought there were some very fine people on both sides. In response to protests against the death of George Floyd, the president tweeted, When the looting starts, the shooting starts. The tweet was so inflammatory that Twitter posted a warning label on it, saying the tweet violated its rules glorifying violence. There's just too much to cover in great detail. What follows is a short mashup of some of the many other statements Trump has made inciting or glorifying violence. At a campaign rally in Kansas City, Missouri, Trump told Heckler, I'll beat the crap out of you. At another rally, there was a pause while hecklers were being escorted out. Trump's comment was, You know the reason it takes so long is that nobody wants to hurt each other, right? When asked about violent behavior at his events, Trump said, The audience hit back, and that's what we need a little more of. He also praised people for using physical force at his events as appropriate. In another quote, he said, In the good old days, this didn't happen because they used to treat them very rough. And when they protested once, they wouldn't do it again so easily. We've become weak. In another event where protesters were being escorted out, Trump said, Try not to hurt him. If you do, I'll defend you in court. Step 9. Make some attempt at insurgency. I could go on and on about Trump's exhortations to his supporters to use violence. A full list of Trump's encouragement of violence would take the rest of this episode, and we don't have time. But we know where this all led. On January 6, 2021, extreme right Trump supporters followed Trump's exhortations to march on the Capitol and fight like hell. They did. The result? Five died, including one Capitol Police officer, who died valiantly defending his country's capital. Their accomplishment? 
For the first time in our country's 232 years, they prevented the peaceful transfer of power from one president to another lawfully elected president. That's quite an accomplishment. Biden was ultimately confirmed and sworn in as president, but only after Trump's forces, that is, his supporters, who were willing to use violence to keep him in office, in spite of our nation's confirmed election results, had stormed and taken over our nation's Capitol building and delayed the certification of Joe Biden as our 46th president. And step 10, don't be loyal to your supporters. Remember, you are the savior. You're the only one who can save the country from the threat you've convinced everyone exists. You've made it clear that no one else can do it. This, of course, means that you're operating with a different set of morals than anyone else. You can save the country. Everyone else? They're just a means to your ends. This one was never a challenge for Trump. The list of top members of Trump's so-called A-team, that is, members of the executive office of the president who left during Trump's four years in office, is long and stunning, a jaw-dropping 92%. It includes Deputy Chief of Staff Katie Walsh, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Chief of Staff Rents Priebus, Chief Strategist and Senior Counselor to the President Steve Bannon, CIA Director Mike Pompeo, Director of Intergovernmental Affairs Justin Clark, Counselor to the President Kellyanne Conway, and so many others. This compilation by the Brookings Institution only tracks the first departure from A-team posts. Yet according to the same survey, there were 27 A-team positions that had at least three occupants, such as Chief of Staff that was filled by four different people and his communications director that was occupied by a whopping seven different office holders during Trump's tenure as president. Critically, when you fire or lose a member of your team, you must verbally attack them and cut them down. After initially lavishing great praise on John Bolton, whom he appointed National Security Advisor, Trump unceremoniously fired him 16 months later in a tweet, subsequently calling him washed up and claiming, Everyone in the White House hated him. Trump appointed Kirsten Nielsen as Homeland Secretary in 2017, then launched into a relationship in which, according to White House sources, he was repeatedly abusive to her, making fun of her height at 5 feet 4 inches. At one White House meeting, Trump launched into an alleged red-faced tirade as Nielsen was attempting to explain how the law on asylum allowed immigrants to cross the border and claim asylum in the U.S. Upset at Nielsen's refusal to ignore the law of the land, Trump got so worked up during his extended diatribe against her that he appeared manic, according to sources in the room at the time. She left after 16 months on the job. About his chief of staff, General John Kelly, Trump said, He was with me. He didn't do a good job. He had no temperament. And ultimately, he was petered out. He got eaten alive. He was unable to handle the pressures of the job. Kelly lasted about 17 months in the Trump administration. Trump called his defense secretary, the distinguished Marine Corps General Jim Mattis, 
the world's most overrated general. Mattis lasted a little under two months as Defense Secretary. Rex Tillerson, who had been CEO of ExxonMobil, the largest publicly traded oil and gas company, was appointed as Secretary of State in 2018. He was fired by Trump after 14 months on the job, Trump said. He was dumb as a rock. And the list goes on and on. Of his communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, a highly unstable nut job. His FBI director, James Comey, a total sleaze and a crooked cop. Attorney General William Barr, a total disappointment in every sense of the word. We've, of course, already discussed Jeff Sessions, and I haven't begun to cover all of the ex-insiders that Trump has turned his back on. But I think I've made my point. I'm not trying to compare Trump to Hitler. I could have used Mussolini, Franco, or other fascist dictators to look at steps towards fascism. Certainly Trump didn't commit atrocities like Hitler. But he did use the major steps from the fascist playbook. My question being, why is it okay to be just a little bit Hitler? At any rate, as we examined in episode 31, Hitler spent many years preparing the groundwork to become a fascist dictator. If you count the year he spent campaigning, Trump had a mere five years to lay the groundwork to usurp power extra-constitutionally. Yet at the end of his first term in office, his choice was to accept a peaceful transition to power or accept some kind of violent insurrection that would keep him in office. Sadly, he chose the latter. And on 1-6, a mob of violent Trump supporters attacked and took over our nation's capital in an attempt to stop the transfer of power to Joe Biden. They were successful, at least temporarily. The Electoral College vote count was stopped, and members of Congress had to retreat to a fortified underground bunker to secure them from attacks by the insurrectionists. Fortunately, the insurrectionists were ousted from the Capitol. And on January 7, Mike Pence declared Joe Biden the winner of the 59th U.S. presidential election. The stories of the insurrectionists are scary. Some were covered in body armor. Some openly carried plastic zip-tie handcuffs, making it plain it was their attempt to take hostages. Clearly, congressmen and women. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick was beaten and sprayed with mace or bear spray and was killed by the insurrectionists. But this was only the beginning. The crowd injured a total of 138 police officers, some severely, during their attempt to stop the certification of our nation's election and keep Donald Trump in power by force. Some of the stories of the beatings are horrendous. Some of the injuries were severe. And some of these brave officers will pay for the rest of their lives for this attempt on 1-6 to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. But that's what happens in violent insurrections. You heard him. These people, meaning Trump supporters, are not going to take it any longer. They rigged an election. They rigged it like they've never rigged an election before. We will never give up. We will never concede. You don't concede when there's theft. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. We will fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. 
Ultimately, Trump's attempt to prevent the peaceful exchange of power that has been going on since George Washington relinquished the presidency in favor of John Adams failed, but his following, at least in part, of a path that has led to strongman rule in other countries, earned him the support of thousands of supporters who would converge on Washington, D.C. and take over our nation's capital in their attempt to mount an insurrection that should give us all pause. And the fact that he allowed the insurrectionists full reign in our nation's seat of power for two hours before he released a video asking them to go home puts the lie to the argument that he wasn't supportive of the insurrection. Don't believe me? Listen to the words he used to address those who violently overran our nation's capital. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You could say that I've been hard on Trump in this episode, but that's actually not my point. Trump's not the real problem. Yes, he's an adulterer who has bragged that he could grab women by their genitals and get away with it because of his star power, and has referred to countries he didn't want to accept immigrants from as shithole countries. He's supported a massive tax cut for the super wealthy that increased the deficit immensely and pushed hard for an environmental agenda that has accelerated our rush toward an environmental catastrophe. But Trump did these things, and many more questionable, offensive, disruptive, and negative actions. But again, ultimately, he's not the problem. So why, after all he did, would I say that Trump isn't the problem? Well, for one thing, Trump isn't likely to make a comeback. Since 1900, no president who presided during a strong economy has lost a second term in office. Trump is the only president to do this in well over 120 years, and he lost by a landslide if you're to believe his reasoning. In 2016, he won the presidential election over Hillary Clinton by 306 electoral votes to 232 and declared that a landslide election victory even though he lost the popular vote. In 2020, Joe Biden not only won the national popular vote, but won the Electoral College by the exact same 306 to 232 margin that Trump had won in 2016. According to Trump, therefore, he not only lost, but he lost in a landslide. Trump then started the big lie claiming massive voter fraud prevented him from winning the election. He had worked hard to position himself as the savior of the far right and had trained his supporters to accept his lies. Now a great many of them did so. Yet, though he will continue to be a voice on America's political scene, I doubt his outsized sway over American politics will continue. 
Americans in general, and the far right in particular, seem to be particularly intolerant of losers. Not only did Trump lose, but by his own logic, he lost in a landslide. Not only did his insurrection fail, but so did the scores of lawsuits all over the United States. Thank you, Donald. Now the issue of his claims of voter fraud could be fully litigated in courts of law. Trump filed 62 lawsuits. Of these, he won exactly one. And this suit didn't litigate the subject of voter fraud. A Pennsylvania court held for Trump that the state voters had three days to provide proper ID to cure any inconsistencies in their ballots. That's it. He lost every single one of the scores of other lawsuits he filed trying to prove voter fraud. This includes lawsuits before Democratic judges and Republican judges, including Republican judges that he appointed. Few, if any, other election issues in America have been so thoroughly litigated, vetted, and decided so unanimously. This makes any further claim of election fraud just so much whining as the only president to lose the presidency during a strong economy in the last 120 years. He's unlikely to garner enough continued respect to win the presidency yet again. The larger reason I say Trump isn't the real problem, however, is that if he were suddenly to disappear from the political stage tomorrow, he'd be replaced by someone else. It's true that there are Republicans like Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney with integrity enough to stand up to Trump and say he's headed in the wrong direction. Sadly, these Republicans are too few and far between. Why? Some prominent Republicans agree with Trump and want to pursue his or a similar agenda. Others know that opposing Trump would possibly mean the end of their political careers, and they don't have the integrity to say, doing the right thing is more important than me holding on to my seat of power. Why do I say Trump would be replaced with someone else? As always, you have to look at your historical drivers. And Trump isn't an historical force that's acting independent of his power base. This was certainly much more the case with ancient monarchies. Ancient kings like Charlemagne, who were great generals and driven by the drive to acquire ever more territory, were certainly historical drivers in and of themselves who had outsized effects on the kingdoms of their day. But in modern democracies, while presidents and prime ministers certainly have very strong effects on the course of their nations, they are largely the result of the character of the electorate that elects them into office. For someone observing the Republican Party in 2015 and 16 with an historical perspective, it was interesting, though certainly not gratifying, to watch as the candidate who had the most bullying and adversarial approach in his speeches and debates and the most anti-environmental positions gained more and more popular support as the primary season wore on. It was an electorate who valued these traits that drove the popularity of Donald Trump as a candidate. It wasn't Donald Trump that instilled these values on his base. This is why Those who continue to fear Trump and claim that he's the biggest danger in our democracy are wrong. If he should retire and swear off politics tomorrow, the same base that elected the most extreme candidate in 2016 will still be there 
in our next presidential election, looking for a candidate who's the biggest bully, vilifying Democrats as un-American outgroups, and who's willing, once again, to drop out of the Paris Climate Agreement, encourage carbon-burning technologies, and bring back coal. So it's possible the real danger may lie in another, as yet, unelected president in our near future. Why? I'm not quite there yet. Give me a few episodes, and I'll tell you why I think some kind of negative change to our democracy in the near future is not out of the question. Will this be fascism in the vein of World War II Germany, Italy, or Japan? Probably not. But such a shift wouldn't be a positive change for those who are not followers of the movement's chosen leader. We're kind of in uncharted territory here. America's the first of the great democracies that began in 1776. It was ultimately followed by most, but not all, of the developed world. We could be the first of the great democracies to crash and burn. How does such a great democracy crash and burn? Does it result in an ongoing but weakened democracy that's not a serious player in the world's power politics? Or does it end up with some kind of authoritarian government? I'm not sure, but I know I don't want to find out. The stakes we're playing with here are the highest we've ever played with in the history of our country. This week's read is The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, by Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen. This book takes a deep dive into why we act as we do, and how those actions come from inner motivations we may not be aware of. Most of my reading recommendations are intended to further illuminate something I've covered in an episode. This week's read will help prepare you for much that's coming up in the next few episodes. I hope you find time to read it. Enjoy. See you next week.